Hello there. Oh, hello there, Jen Ponton. Oh, hi, Lily and Bustle. How you doing? I'm good. How's your face? My face is great. Guess what I did yesterday morning. Does this involve your face? Uh, Yes, and my (laughs) and my rictus of horror. So uh, I stopped on the side of the highway at 6 a.m. in God, uh-huh. with no light whatsoever, still pitch uh-huh. black. Stopped to let my dog out to go potty. He wiggled around and almost got out of his harness, so I had to scoop him up in my arms and then put him back in the car and be yeah. like, "Listen, bitch." <laughs> Oh my god. That's not how this is going. What is he trying to do? Oh, he just he panicked. And then as I took him around in the dark, I realized I didn't have my phone. And I started to panic and oh, I no. put my anxious little dog back in the car and I was like, <laughs> "Okay, retrace Mm-mm. your steps in the dark in this like empty parking lot that only had big rigs there and like oh, no. as a reminder to you my hometown serial killer was a truck driver so I'm like uh-uh no. absolutely not <laughs> my god and I did like three sweeps just trying to breathe and re oh, and go back honey. and then I found it and I was like thank fucking god it was on the ground it was on the ground it was in the grass Oh, okay, so you didn't hear it fall. No, I did not. God. Oh, Oh my God. I hate that. And I hate it. Oh, it was, it was, and my face was Mm. like, every muscle. This cannot be. Oh, it was real, real bad. I was like, uh, well, I don't exactly know what to do from here, so (laughs) I really hope I find it. The good thing about me being in the middle of nowhere was that there was nobody there to, like, fucking steal my phone but mm. i was also like oh if i don't find this i'm really really fucked you go up to the truck you're like um and pardon me sir have you an extra rand mcnally map for a lady in distress <laughs> i got a world atlas for you <laughs> you're you're here in g4 you gotta be in w9 <laughs> Oh my god, that's how we actually used to read maps, wasn't it? Uh, 100%. Wow, how did I remember that? Even since I've been dating Don, we had a spiral-bound road atlas in the car. Oh my god. uh, Yeah, I mean, then, you know... When well, and the nice thing about Google Maps, Yahoo Maps, and MapQuest is that they were never quite um, uh, uh, accurate enough for us to fully ever trust them. Mm. So we we still use, even though we had the directions, we kind of like double check them because they would they would like some of them would try to like drive you into a lake. <laughs> yes, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Fun times. Um, so fuck buddies. Very exciting news. Some of you are already responding to us. We're very thrilled about this. Dreading the boards is yes. coming. Lillian, what's dreading the boards? Okay. So uh, um everybody who has been in theater or film or really performance talent at all, shows. What are you? Are you a stilt walker? Are you a mime? What is your area of expertise? Puppetry? No. Everybody has been Definitely in. Definitely puppetry story. Uh, 
Oh, Lord. Everybody has been in a show that has gone wrong. And whether it's been like backstage nightmares or onstage nightmares or rehearsal nightmares or Mm. literally any of the combination of any of these things. Uh, And we are going to invite people to tell their stories on our podcast. It's going to be two different uh, two different kinds of ways that you can tell you tell us your tell you us stories. Cool. Yes. I'll keep drinking. That's it. We haven't we haven't recorded in the <laughs> evening in a while. Um we uh so what we want at first is we want for you to send us either uh, a voice memo um or a sound file or however you can reach out to us. Don't type up a story and send it to us. We'll be like, "Thanks, I read it," but then we can't do anything with it. Um we want to hear your voice 2 minutes or under telling us the story and if you feel like there's more to tell then you can send it as a pitch and we will use those to um, find people to interview on longer segments but you can also just send us a little thing that's like oh my god uh, uh, someone decided to ride an actual motorcycle on stage during Wheels of a Dream and that was nuts right (laughs) drawn from actual Uh, theater history oh sure (laughs) Sure. Uh, or like or like we were doing a concert version of Ragtime and we couldn't afford a car. So someone just made a cardboard portion portion of the front of the car and yes. then wheeled that out. And oh, then you can fuck. be like, bam, 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 and that's it. Uh, and then you can send that in to us. Do we have a Google phone number? Do we make a phone number? We don't number have a Google phone number message? yet. Let's try. Let's try this first. I feel like nobody really wants to talk on the phone anyway. Yeah, right? They can do a voice memo and then they can try it again, too. Whereas, like, once you're leaving a ma- voicemail, it's like, fuck! Then it's done. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, but we're super excited. And there's definitely a buzz about this already. So, Hey, just because hey. it's all the fucks, huh. what is the worst... Okay, before we called it voicemail when it was just an answering machine. Let's, oh, God. Let's remember. So, uh-huh. right now, if you leave a voicemail, if you want, you can erase it. Uh-huh. Ever since cell phones. Or you can listen to it again and then erase it or keep it or whatever. Or you can just hang mm-hmm. up and it goes. Mm-hmm. But back in the days of answering machines, when mm-hmm. that tape would start rolling and you were on the phone, like you could either hang up or the second you said anything, it was forever in the annals. How, how does one say that? Annals. It, yeah. A-N-N-A-L-S. Annals. Yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> wasn't really sure how we pronounced that first A. And it's forever in Uranus. (laughs) (laughs) So what is the worst answering machine message you have ever had to leave? Or maybe if you've received one that was particularly cringeworthy. Oh, farts. I don't remember much about answering machine life. Um, we, We didn't really have... I do not have a story that fits this. Oh, man. I mean, you know what mine is. I do. <laughs> I do, but I will say that I always love those late night ads for, like, a tape that you could put in that's like, Lillian's not home right now. I'm a lion. Roar. I had those. You remember that? Did you I really? had those. I swear to God. But they were not, they were not goofy voices. They were, uh, they were, uh, parodies of classical of classical songs um uh-huh <laughs> you're the nerdiest yeah um uh i'm i'm just struggling to think about what they were now but they, it was like we are not home right now leave on the phone right now nah, nah. you know like mm, that must was, have been right around the time that the singing cats was a thing 
I don't know what you're talking about. Like meow, 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 meow. With the um oh when it might but when meow, but with the popularity of those um the Casios where you could record like a burp or something into it. Uh-huh. People were doing all kinds of cat cats doing classical music stuff. I it wasn't good. It's exactly what you I mean, if you good. are you can you can Google that and hear it right now if you want to. Oh fuck. <laughs> I remember there was one where there was like uh I think that you could buy one that had Andrew Dice Clay being like, Hey oh, leave a message or whatever the hell. <laughs> I wanna make that my answering machine right now. Uh, Did I ever tell I, you that I would huh. re uh I feel like I told you this. I definitely told someone this. <laughs> I I would um I would re-record my answering machine message on my personal line because my mm. line was the internet line. And so, like, it was only occupied during the day. So when, you know, a fellow children would call me, it was... Fellow children. <laughs> uh, you could leave Greetings, it... Greetings, fellow leave kids. It. Yeah. <laughs> I think my parents let me have it as my phone line Probably by the time I was like 15 and they were like, oh my God, this kid won't get off the fucking phone. We like, just give it to her. Um, and I would re-record it every day or two with like my own improvisation of my own HI forensics pieces. So like. <laughs> oh my God. This is like, this is, this is like the They Might Be Giant song a day hotline. Yeah. What? Oh wow. <laughs> yes. It was Bringing you delightful. the greatest hits of the 80s, 90s, and today. Oh, shit. Lillian yeah. Bustle. <laughs> it was definitely by my sophomore year, probably my freshman year. Um, but yeah, I did uh, I did For Whom the Southern Bell Tolls by Chris Durang as my forensic uh-huh. piece. And so totally. I would improvise as like Lawrence and whatever they named the Southern Bell um, uh, for, you know, like 30 seconds and then it would beep and whatever. <laughs> My God, and that's that's the very cool way that I spent my time. You are very cool. You're so cool. Christ. (laughs) (laughs) I wish I still had them. Had access to them. They might have been digital at that point. Actually, that's amazing. (laughs) So, Um, we're gonna just coming. Yes, very exciting. Send so us send voice us memos. Stuff. Or you're welcome to write us to pitch to us as a full-on interview. Um, we're really, really excited to be working on that for like a good portion of you. If you somehow like us but have no interest in theater or performance whatsoever, you're probably in the minority. But for most of you, this is going to be an absolute fucking hell yes. Oh, yeah. So. It's going to be a slam dunk. Also, <laughs> slam even dunk. if you even if you've never been in theater before in your entire life, this is going to be you. Well, you're going to be like, oh, I'm so glad I dodged that bullet. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Because theater people are the weirdest. We're so weird. And, people and they're able to maintain. Us. It's the one area where I mean, because with an artist, you can be weird. But you don't hit eccentric until you're actually rich. Like eccentric is usually reserved for the rich people. But you can be full on eccentric and run a a mid-size community theater 
Good God. Yeah. Or you can be uh, the head of um, the College of William and Mary Theater Department. <laughs> and be narcoleptic Just for example and be eccentric like oh it is God, a gateway delightful. if you know it works if you work it <laughs> uh so yes that for sure um and before we launch into anything for our stuff today i want to give my shout out at the beginning yes um and jen it's about that designer i sent you oh shit so jordan Let's say that the last name is Piante Dosi. Um, Jordan, J-O-R-D-A-N. Last name is P-I-A-N-T-E-D-O-S-I dot com. If you cannot find this website, then you can Google Spicy Possum Corset Mini Dress and you will find it. <laughs> oh, uh, I don't my know. fuck. I don't know how I have gone this long without knowing that this person was alive and making stuff up to three and four XL. Like it is, okay. uh, I, you know, it's, it's not cheap, but also it's a designer. And yeah. the fact that there's designer things out there for us that are in our price range, I'm not talking a $5,000 gown. I'm talking like a $144 robe that is one of the choicest things I've ever seen in my whole oh, life. I'm talking, so a, good. I'm talking a $100 bag. That I am definitely getting to put everything in. That's like less than a stupid Le Sports sack bag. I, yes. I can't wait. Oh my God. Such a good wreck. I don't really. Do I have a recommendation? Uh, you know what? I. If you are a fan, uh, you aren't. But if y'all are fans of The Office and you're not aware of this, I've been listening to a ton of. The Office Ladies podcast, which is hosted by Pam and Angela, and they go through episode by episode and give you like the full, it's almost like their commentary, but you're not watching live. They're breaking it down for you live. It's really wonderful. Are these people who were on the show? Yes. So Pam (gasps) is like the romantic lead, and then Angela is supporting. It's so lovely. Are they in character or no? No, no, no. The actors. Okay, okay. No, they're just talking as Jenna, the actress, and Angela, the actress. But it's gotcha, gotcha. really delightful. So, um, definitely some great, uh, some great fare that's going to last a long time because they have nine seasons to get through. Um, oh my god, I love it! I love yeah, it. It's really sweet. I like it a lot. Um, Yay! So this is going to be a shorty today, fuck buddies. And we are going to finish up "Necklace of Kisses" by Francesca Leah Block. Mm-hmm. Morning. The breakfast she had ordered the night before was sitting on her doorstep: fruit salad, a poached egg, and fresh squeezed orange juice. On the tray, there was also a small china mermaid figurine with big, surprised-looking eyes and long green hair. Weetsy turned it upside down right away. There was a piece of paper tucked into the opening at the base of the figure. It read, Help, Midnight, XXX, Pamela. She ate, bathed, and dressed in her white tank over an orange orange French lace bra, her orange zippered pants, and her orange sneakers. She was still wearing the jeweled necklace from the night before. Weetsy sat down at the yellow desk and added some notes to the Mm. list for Tristan Sable. The genie returns, meeting Zane Starling, a diamond tear, the ghost in the garden, be a hero. Then what? At the end of the list, she wrote, call me and we'll talk about these some more. Weetsy. 
She put the notes into an envelope, addressed it to dis- uh, addressed it to Dashiell Hart, who had slipped her his card at their last lunch, got a postage stamp at the front desk, and mailed the notes to Dashiell and Tristan. Then she walked to the row of shops. They were all open, except for the jewelers. Inside, it was completely dark. But Weetsy knew she didn't need the genie anymore. Instead, she went to see Lacey at her beautiful world. I need your help, she said. How strong is your web? Can it catch very, very big flies? How big? How nasty? Big and nasty, Weetsy said. Lacey smiled. Next, Mm -hmm. Weetsy went to the cherub suite. She wasn't sure who answered the door. The person was wearing an electric blue kimono and headscarf and needed a shave. Weetsy checked the feet to see if they would give her a clue. They were bare, with clear, polished toenails. I'm sorry to disturb you so early, Weetsy said. It's all right, said Heaven. Come in, sweetheart. Weetsy went inside and sat down with Heaven on a settee with gold wings. Heaven handed Weetsy a small envelope. What can I do you for? This may sound very silly, said Weetsy. Silly? I love silly. Where would we be without it? I just wondered if, this may be presumptuous, but I wondered if there was anything I could help you with. Heaven grinned, coyly placed a hand between her own legs, and said, That kiss wasn't too bad. I could use a nice rock. Weetsy's eyes widened. You know, a ruby earring. No, just kidding. I only kiss when I really know the person. Or if it's a game of spin the bottle. Weetsy said, because I realize that I've spent this whole time here indulging myself, and I'd like to do something that matters a little. So, if there's anything you'd like... Heaven reached out and touched Weetsy's hand. She touched Max's gold ring. Are you leaving us? Weetsy nodded. Soon. Did you get what you came for? Almost, Weetsy said. There's something else I have to do first. Come to my ball tomorrow night said heaven. But besides that, what did you think you could do for me? I have no idea, really. I told you it was silly. I just wanted to try. Because you already have done something for me, Weetsy. Because you already have done something for me, sweetie, heaven said. Congratulations. It only took you, what, about four decades, but still. What? Weetsy asked. And Heaven said, Why, Weetsy Bat? You've grown up, of course. Mm. The Goddess. On the way back from the desert, Max stopped at Weetsy's store. He wasn't sure why he was doing this. He knew he, he knew she wasn't there, and he wouldn't know what to say to Ping if she was working, but he just wanted to be inside. The sales girl, Hilda, was talking to a guy with a goatee. Max walked around the shop. Everything was carefully and sparsely arranged on gleaming racks. There were 40s satin slips, 50s party dresses and beaded sweaters, 60s minis, 70s bell bottoms and print blouses. There were denim jackets and jeans appliqued with silk flowers, wool coats embellished with jewels and hand-painted tuxedos. The wood floor, white walls, windows, and mirrors sparkled. The air did not smell of old clothing, only of woolite and roses. 
Max chose a black tuxedo with a white rose painted on the lapel, a pair of gold pointy-toed pumps with very high heels, and elbow-length pink, elbow pink gloves. He went up to the counter and waited for Hilda. The goatee guy left, and Hilda turned around, <clears throat> not aware that Max was there. She had tears in her eyes, magnified behind her large black-framed glasses. Hilda, said Max, you okay? She tried to smile and dabbed at her eyes with an embroidered cotton handkerchief. Oh, yeah, sorry. Uh, are, are you going to take that stuff? Uh, and I'd like to buy the dress up there. Max pointed above the counter to a frothy white gown. It had a strapless, pleated satin bodice and a huge tulle skirt made of silk roses. Princess Grace, Hilda said. <laughs> Is that what she calls it? Her. That's Wheatsy's princess. I'll put it all in the book. Uh, I'm buying it. Her. Don't you just want to take her? No, said Max. I'm paying. No discount either. Okay. Hilda went to ring him up. How's Wheatsy? She asked. I haven't seen her for a while. Max said uh, she's taking a little time for herself. Oh, said Hilda. She looked at him more closely. Are you okay? Max said, Do you want the truth or the polite answer? The truth, said Hilda. <laughs> Always the truth. Not okay. Me either. Do you want to talk about it? She looked down at the cash register. The guy who was just here, that's Ezra. Ezra? Yeah, he's my boyfriend, I think. Anyway, he's always on me about something. Like, he wants me to lose weight and get rid of my glasses. He even wants me to change my name. He thinks Hilda Doolittle is a bad name for a poet. What do you think? Max said, There was a poet in the 20s named Hilda Doolittle. You don't know her? Hilda shook her head. Oh, she wrote this spare, beautiful stuff, and she saw a goddess in Greece. Hilda's eyes widened behind her glasses. And Ezra Pound changed her name to H.D. H.D., that's cool. Who's Ezra Pound? He was a very famous poet. Anyway, I don't think Ezra is necessarily the coolest name I've ever heard. Hilda shrugged. Why do you like this guy? Hilda said, I'm not sure. Uh, seems to care, I guess. Uh, he cares that I am fat and that I have a bad name. Max shook his head. Hilda, you are not fat. Hilda tried to swallow the sandy lump in her throat. He he thinks... Mm, he thinks I should call myself Big H. Have you told him to change his name? <laughs> I guess he already did. Ezra, my god. He also had this idea that I call myself Hot Dog. Max winced. Hilda, the only thing you need to change is your so-called boyfriend. He looked at her pale, sad face. And get in touch with your inner HD. Hilda smiled. Thanks, she said. I just wish I was that good with my own problems. Well... What would you say to you if you were me? He shrugged. <laughs> I'll have to think about that one. 
He took the pink and silver bag she handed him and left the store. As he stepped out into the sunshine, he thought about Hilda's question. Find the goddess inside yourself instead of looking for the god in someone else. <laughs> he wasn't sure if this was his advice to Hilda or to himself. Sunset. Weetzie thought that Sunset Boulevard was the perfect Los Angeles street. It had a movie named after it. If you followed it from beginning to end, you would find most pieces of the city's puzzle. For Weetzie, the boulevard told a little story of her life. She had even been born on it. It began near downtown, just after Chinatown, with its cherry blossom-colored lanterns, its pagoda restaurants, and stone dragons. Cesar Chavez Avenue, its sign printed in English, Spanish, and Chinese, changed into a boulevard called Sunset. This birth was marked by a sleazy motel called Paradise. What a perfect name, Weetzie thought, in a city that was partly paradise, or at least pretending to be paradise. In Echo Park, there were sparse, dusty palm trees, tiny neighborhood markets selling meats and fruits, panaderias, lavanderias. There were clues that artists were hidden in the surrounding hills, a green building with headless mannequins <laughs> and Day of the Dead skeletons on the balcony, bright murals defaced with graffiti, little outdoor cafes serving guava, pa serving guava pastries and strong coffee. At Alvarado, there was a sign announcing that this was part of the historic Route 66. <laughs> Max once told Wheatsey that it had been the main thoroughfare from Chicago before the Cold War, when Eisenhower built the interstate system, partly as an escape route in case of nuclear attack. <laughs> Wheatsey thought, of course Max would have to bring nuclear attack into this. For her, Route 66 was just the song, full of finger-snapping cool and adventure, but there was something she loved about the fact that he knew things like that. Once she'd asked him why he couldn't just put them out of his mind, and he'd said, It's the only way I know to take care of you. In Silver Lake, there was a Mexican restaurant strung with red chili pepper lights, a Spanish restaurant with flamenco dancers in the courtyard, and a bar called Akbar, after the fez-headed comic strip character, in a triangular wedge of a building. Weetsy, Max, Dirk, and Duck spent many a happy, happy hour drinking beers or having margaritas and chips on this part of the street. Every year they went to the Sunset Junction Street Fair to hear bands and eat greasy food. When Weetsy was very young, she had too many beers and ran around the fair with Dirk and a group of other people she couldn't remember except for the odd-looking skinny member of a seminal, now defunct new wave band who was gnawing on a giant, greasy turkey leg. What a goat rope this place is, he muttered, when the rickety, portable Ferris wheel they were riding got stuck in midair. The ornate Deco Vista Theater stood on the corner where the street angled back around toward Hollywood. Weetzie was born at Kaiser Hospital and went to Hollywood High School on Sunset. When she was little, her daddy took her to see Mary Poppins at the Cinerama Dome, and he spent the whole second half of the movie chasing her in circles around the aisles. They liked to eat at the old spaghetti factory, slurping up huge plates of noodles with the marinara sauce in red velvet Victorian train car seats. When Weetzie was older and Charlie moved to New York, she searched for someone to run through theaters and eat spaghetti with. 
She wore butterfly wings to the palladium and stood alone in the darkness, listening to the band, hoping to find him. She played billiards next to rude 80s TV heartthrobs at the Hollywood Athletic Club. She drank martinis on the patio at the Cat and the Fiddle Pub and ate cheap vegetarian Indian food at Paru's. But he, if he was there too, he didn't recognize her. He did not discover her eating strawberry ice cream sundaes with marshmallow topping at Schwab's, but she did find her prom dress at the vintage clothing shop that opened up in its place before that became the Virgin Megastore. <laughs> the strip was lined with giant billboards. Weetzie saw a guy sleeping up on one once in the 80s, staying there for as long as he could to advertise something she'd forgotten what. She remembered him, though, with his greasy 80s hair, handsome, grimy face, and cold eyes, joking with the crowd below, doing anything to get some attention. That's what Sunset Boulevard was like. Big show-off street with its nightclubs blaring, Whiskey, Roxy, Rainbow, Starwood. Weetzie thought about all the bands she had seen here when she was young. The Weirdos, The Cramps, The Go-Go's, Oingo Boingo, Wall of Voodoo, The Unknowns, Suburban Lawns, The Adolescents, Fear, The Circle Jerks, The Screaming Sirens, Gears, X. Stepping into that world of music and darkness and smoke and beer where you could forget who you were because you hadn't been in it for that long anyway. Hmm. Where you could be a real artist, a stranger, dead movie star broken doll, ghoul, gay boy, devil, princess, warrior, imagining you had found your muse, best friend, healer, beloved, going home alone. Just a few miles away, a palace belonging to a sheik had once been entirely surrounded by nude white statues with pubic hair painted on them. It was now just an ominous-looking black gate and a field of brown weeds. Everywhere else, the street was lined with rolling green lawns, mansions, and signs advertising maps to the stars' homes. Marlene Dietrich, Charlie Chaplin, Humphrey Bogart, and Lauren Bacall. If you purchased one, you could even find the Brentwood apartment where Marilyn died. The farther west you went, the more the street succumbed to nature. Clusters of happy palm trees decked with strands of their own pearls, banana trees, eucalyptus with peeling bark, white-blossoming magnolia, the odd exotic willow, fir and jacaranda, banks of ivy, and the pale blue flowers that Weetzie used to stick in her hair with their own juice. The trees had a secret. Behind them were lovely homes or smaller streets leading to hidden parks and wild canyons. And then sunset dipped down, past the lake shrine trimmed in azure and gold, down, down went the street, seeking the ocean like a lover, just as Weetzie would tonight. Ocean. Weetzie hadn't been able to sleep all night because of the sound of her heart. Tick-tock, tick-tock. She lay awake in her clothes, watching the clock. At 11.45, she got up and went outside. The air had an odd scent, and she realized it was a salt sea breeze. <laughs> She'd never smelled the ocean from the pink hotel before. Weezy thought about the footsteps. She found herself half wanting to hear them. Was it true what Charlie had said? That a part of Max was following her? 
But why hadn't he called her all this time? And what if she had dreamed the whole thing with Charlie? What if the footsteps were someone else's? She jogged down the path toward the main hotel. It was very quiet there. Weetsy took the stairs to the top floor. When she got to the large suite at the end of the hall, she waited, not sure what to do next. Suddenly the door opened and Shelley stepped out into the hallway. She was wearing a man's baseball cap with her hair tucked up inside and a baggy, dark sweatsuit. Her face looked pale and blurry without any makeup to define it, and her eyes were red. She reached out her hand and Weetsy took it. They ran down the stairs, through the empty lobby, and into the night. The T-bird roared along sunset. Weetsy wanted to tell Shelley her stories about the street, but it, it didn't seem like the right time. Shelley didn't say anything still. Every once in a while, though, she would reach out, grab Weetsy's hand, and squeeze it so hard that it hurt. Weetsy dropped down onto Pacific Coast Highway, took it for a ways, and then pulled into the parking lot of a small ramshackle surf shop with morning glory vines growing over the low wooden roof and a handwritten sign that read, Ducks. Shelley looked at her, questioning. Don't worry, I, I have a friend that will help us. Duck Drake was waiting in his yellow VW bug outside his shop just as he had promised when Weetsy called him that morning. He wore a faded orange long-sleeved t-shirt, board shorts, and flip-flops. His blonde hair was standing on end and his eyes were bleary. Hey, Weets. Duck, this is Shelly. Duck kissed Shelly's hand and she smiled for the first time. Let's go, girls. Weetsy and Shelly got in the VW. Duck put on a David Bowie CD. He and Weetsy sang along. We can be heroes just for one day. They drove along the highway for a long time. Finally, he turned off onto a dirt road, parked the car on the side of a slope above the sea, and got out. Shelly looked at Weetsy. Here? No, we, th we thought it would be better to take you somewhere more secluded. It's a hike, Duck said. Shelly grabbed Weetsy's hand. It's okay, he knows. We'll help you. The path wound down through brambles and sharp, sharp rocks. Shelly's feet slid on the dirt and gravel, so Duck and Weetsy held her between them, guiding her steps. Finally, they reached Duck's favorite secret beach. The slopes were covered with Mexican evening primrose and California poppies. Instead of sand, shiny black stones glimmered in the moonlight. Clear water slithered up the shore, as if it were trying to pull Shelly in, Weetsy thought, and the air was full of echoing voices. But that could have just been the surf breaking on the rocks. Shelly took off her cap and shook out her long, greenish hair. Then she pulled off her clothes as if they had begun to itch her terribly, as if their weight was too much to bear a second longer. She stood naked on the beach with her Barbie doll body. Gravity-defying breasts, tiny waists, and odd, stiff doll legs and feet. Her eyes watched the ocean, unblinking. Then she turned and stroked her thumb against Weetsy's lips. The mermaid made soft, gurgling music in her throat that echoed out towards the horizon. 
Before Weetzie could say anything, Shelley was stumbling over the black rocks. As soon as the water touched her feet, her whole body changed. She bent and immersed herself in the waves, wading out farther and farther, then leaping into the surf. Weetzie and Duck watched for a while until they could no longer see her. Then Duck put his, arms, his arm around Weetzie's shoulders. Thank you, she said. She wanted to close her eyes and go to sleep in his arms. Hey, it's nothing, but I, I hope you're coming home now, dude. Weetzie looked out at the horizon where the sun would rise in a few hours, scalding the waves with light. By then, Shelley would be deep under the water. Maybe she was on her way to her mother. Weetzie knew she, would, she should be ready to go home now, but somehow she wasn't. She put her arm around Duck's warm, broad back. Not yet, dude, she said. The end of the blues. Weetzie was so tired that she could feel the shape of her skull beneath her skin, her cheeks caving in, her eyes sinking deeper into their sockets. But the morning air was dewy and fresh, the sun was rising in the reflecting pool, and a flock of birds lifted off the lawn into the almost fluorescent sky. The valet, whom Weetzie had come to think of as Rudy, opened her car door when she arrived back at the hotel. His jacket sleeve pulled up and she saw that his arm was covered with intricate tattoos. In that jungle of ink and skin, she thought she saw a red heart with my secret written on it with thorns. She stopped at the front desk to check for messages. The blue lady stepped out from behind the glossy leaves of a small potted lemon tree. She was smiling brightly. Good morning. May I help you? How are you? Fine, Miss Bat, and you? Weetzie said, have you heard from your boyfriend? The woman looked surprised. Excuse me? I'm sorry, I was just curious. You seem so happy today. Not a word, but I really don't mind anymore. There are so many things to do and people to see. Then a secretive smile crossed her face. I do think something has changed, though. Her eyes widened. Maybe someone is coming. Weetzie looked through the French doors into the garden. What appeared to be a large blue flower suddenly broke apart, its petals folding, its petals floating into the air. Weetzie realized it was not a flower at all but a clustered flock of butterflies like the ones she and Ping had seen. Who was coming? Witsy wondered. Did I get any messages? She asked. The blue lady checked and shook her head. I'm sorry, I don't see anything. Witsy felt a surprising, sinking feeling. I'm just tired, she told herself. Why should I think Max would call now? Why do I want him to call? She thanked the blue lady and went outside. As she stood beside the reflecting pool, gazing out over the lawn in the shadow of the pink hotel, something tickled her fingers, and she looked down to see one of the large blue butterflies perched on her hand, wiggling its antenna at her. <clears throat> Things that keep you here. All that day, she slept. It was a deep daytime sleep, thick gauze wrapping her like some kind of cocoon. When she woke, she showered and then went to her closet to dress for heaven's ball. Sometimes you fall, spinning through space, grasping for the things that keep you on this earth. Sometimes 
you catch them. They can be the hands of people you love. They can be your pets. Pups with funny names. Cats with ferocious old souls. The thing that keeps you here can be your art. It can be things you have collected and invested with a certain sense of meaning. A flowered, buckled treasure chest of secrets. Shoes that make you taller and therefore closer to the heavens. A suit that belonged to your fairy godmother. A dress that makes you feel a little like the goddess herself. Sometimes you keep falling. You don't catch anything. The night before, Weetzie had put all her clothes, except for Amelia, the pink sandals, and the clothes she had worn to take Shelley back to the sea, into the white case with the gold hardware and pink roses. A handmade lime green, pink, and orange kimono print string bikini. Five men's extra small white tank tops from the surplus store. White Levi's 501 jeans with a faint trace of soy sauce stain. Men's black silk gabardine trousers from the Salvation Army, tailored to fit. Orange leather, silver-studded slides. Some bikini underwear and bras in black, white, pink, and lime green. A black silk and lace camisole. A short white satin designer trench. A pair of high-heeled black ankle strap sandals. A black leather, silver-studded belt from a 1980s hardcore punk store called Posure. A white satin hand-sewn mini-dress that bore a slight resemblance to a toga. A finely woven suit from Lacey's Beautiful World, Coco. The white case with pink roses and everything in it was gone. The pink sandals were gone. Amelia was gone. Weetzie sat down on the floor and wept. As she cried, she clutched the necklace of kisses around her neck. Why are you crying? she asked herself. You still have the necklace. These are only clothes. You didn't cry like this when you left Max, your secret agent lover man, the love of your life. This made her cry even harder. A Brief History of Fashion, According to Miss Wheatsey Bet. 1966. You insist on wearing only a green turtleneck and blue corduroy pants, much to your mother's dismay. You refuse the frilly pink dresses and pale blue suits with Peter Pan collars. Little does your mother know that in 15 years, you will wish you could dress like that every day, with combat boots or black stilettos, of course. 1973. You go to London with your mother and father. The girls are wearing mini skirts, tights, purple suede platform shoes. They have false eyelashes and shiny lips. The boutiques are filled with color and music. Your father buys you some purple suede gillies and you beg your mother to shorten all your dresses to the top of your thighs. You feel you have discovered fashion. Hmm. 1974. You become obsessed with your mother's fashion magazines. You lie on your stomach, pawing through them, touching the images. The designers are Yves Saint Laurent, Karl Lagerfeld, Oscar de la Renta, Sonia Reichiel. You love the sound of their names. The models have feathered hair and wear chiffon peasant dresses covered with roses or sweater sets encrusted with jewels. In one magazine, the black-haired, blue-eyed model is photographed in the homes of the designers. 
The elegant men serve her wine, baguettes, and cheese, recline with her on their sofas and beds. She is their muse. You decide that a muse is what you want to be when you grow up. 1976. You go to junior high school wearing Ditto's jeans, Corky's sandals, and t-shirts you have adorned with rhinestones using a gun from an arts and crafts store. You have a Levi's jacket that you cover with appliques of butterflies. The prettiest girl in your class, Corinne Nichols, admires your jacket. You make her one. She only wears it once, but it makes you feel popular and special. She appears in Seventeen magazine. You imagine that instead of being a muse, you will grow up to be a designer. You sew a pink wraparound skirt and a voile blouse with fairies on it. You buy t-shirts, cut them, and sew laces up the front. You adorn them with tiny silk roses and dye them pastel colors. Some of the popular girls ask you to make them one. At the end of the school year, Corinne Nichols writes in your yearbook in round cursive letters, Thank you for the pretty jacket. You imagine that you too are popular. 1977. How unfortunate that just as you are trying to develop breasts, tube tops come into fashion. Mortifying, actually. You cannot comprehend why anyone would want to wear a band of stretchy elastic over her boobs. These things show everything and can be pulled off with one tug. Yuck. 1978. You are not happy about the disco trend. It's better than tube tops, but still makes you uncomfortable and embarrassed. You go to a few dance clubs wearing spandex pants, candies, slides, and shirts with double belts. You wish you had been born in a different era. Ten years ago, you would have made a perfect flower child, part of a movement. 1980. The popular girls do not invite you to their parties. You spend time alone, sewing, listening to music, roller skating around the city. There is a boy in school with a mohawk. He wears black pants with chains and steel boots and ripped t-shirts. You've never seen anyone like him. You buy some punk albums at the record store. You feel you have discovered music. You go to your first punk rock show. You come home and take everything out of your closet. You rip up all your t-shirts. You throw away your pastel jeans. You keep only your Levi's 501s, which you wash as often as possible, hoping they will get holes in them. You stop reading your fashion magazines. You go to all the thrift stores you can find. With just a few dollars, you buy a pair of engineer boots with steel toes, a small black leather motor- mo- motorcycle jacket, a pleated red plaid miniskirt, and armloads of old silk dresses that no one seems to want. You feel that you have discovered the true meaning of fashion. You raid your mother's closet for rhinestone jewelry, beaded sweaters, miniskirts, and pointed pumps. You go to the surplus store for boys' t-shirts that you rip up and adorn with safety pins. You cut off all your hair and bleach it platinum. You decide to talk to the boy with the mohawk, whose name is Dirk. 1981. Dirk's grandmother Fifi dies. She leaves you clothes. Gowns, suits, hats, shoes, a genuine Chanel, a Pucci. You read about Coco and how Marilyn loved Emilio. 
You think that the Pucci prints are like highly magnified pictures of the inner workings of nature. These clothes transform you. They are like magic, your treasures. 1982, you shop on Melrose. There are stores called Vertigo and Neo 80 and Wacko and Tiger Rose. Cowboys and Poodles has 50s clothes that have never been worn before. Grau is owned by a designer with feral eyes who sits in front of an aqua vinyl curtain by a bowl of gardenias sewing depression wear. Let It Rock features rocker clothes from London, including electric blue suede creepers with big black rubber soles and a pink leather motorcycle jacket that you save up for and buy. You wear the motorcycle jacket with a glittery tutu. You feel as if you are finally part of some kind of movement. 1986, Melrose is now rows of cheap, sexy, stretchy clothes. The artists move east. You stay home, happily sewing dresses covered with pacifiers, jackets made of teddy bears, pants of white silk flowers, elaborate sparkly costumes for your daughters. They become your muses. 1992. You realize that you have spent the last few years in mom clothes, capri pants or jeans, flip-flops or sneakers, in tank tops, only dressing up with style when you go out at night or play a part in a movie. You look at fashion magazines again, but you are not impressed or inspired. The designers seem somehow cold and mean-spirited. You dream of having your own store. 1995. The 90s confuse you. You recall that it began with Madonna in a bra with sharp gold cones, Somehow, this was one Madonna look you were not able to embrace. You spend most of your time wearing fitted black clothes. You see an exhibition of a female Japanese artist's work at the Los Angeles County Mu Museum. There is a dress made of white iron covered with delicate, intricate wrought iron flowers. You believe it is the perfect metaphor for fashion. 1998. Kabbalah. Yoga. Frida Kahlo. The goddess is coming out of hiding. You decide that you love clothing again. You can't read enough fashion magazines. You go to cheap stores by the beach and buy Asian print tops covered with rhinestones that you wear with jeans and bejeweled skirts that you wear with flip-flops and t-shirts. You buy sheer sequin embroidered saris at the Indian shop and make them into tops and scarves. You cut up old kimonos and piano shawls and make them into jackets. You are a new bohemian. You open your store. When you walk through the French doors, you feel you are in your own little altar to the goddess. 2001. You are depressed about getting older. You watch Hedwig in The Angry Inch. When beautiful Hedwig's lover reacts in horror to her naked body, Hedwig tells him, It's what I've got to work with. Work it, she does. You decide to do the same, feeling that you have proven yourself in the trenches of thrift shopping, hand sewing, and bargain hunting. You buy a white satin trench coat by a hot young designer. It costs more than you have ever spent on anything, but you feel that finally you deserve it. You also buy designer stilettos in black and a white bag. You tell yourself they are classics. You will have them forever. 
Events happen in the world that make you recognize the impermanence of everything. You realize that forever is not what it seems. This only helps you justify your purchases more. <laughs> 2003. Your most treasured items of clothing are stolen. You try to decide if you should take this as a message of endings or beginnings. Prom Night Weetsie Bat went alone to Heaven's Ball. She wore a white tank top, orange cropped and zippered pants, and orange sneakers stained from sand and mud. Around her neck she wore the necklace of kisses. On the way to the room in the hotel where she had attended her high school prom, Weetsie saw a large white animal. At first she thought he was a small horse. His legs were balletic, almost as long as hers. His head was noble and heavy like a marble sculpture. Hey, fella, Weetsie said. Hey, beautiful, will you be my date? The Great Dane pushed the top of his head against the palm of her hand. His skull felt so smooth. There was something almost prehistoric about him. He looked up at her with eyes like Kuan Yin, the Chinese goddess of compassion. Weetsie and her companion walked together into the hotel. No one stopped to question her about him. He was not really like a dog, after all. He was otherworldly, like the pink hotel. On the second floor, a large pair of doors opened into the room with the pink and green parquet dance floor, surrounded by tables covered with white linen tablecloths and pink and white stargazer lilies. Hundreds and hundreds of white balloons and an endless stream of soap bubbles hovered around a Miro disco ball on the ceiling. There was an ice cream sundae cart, a cappuccino cart, a clown making balloon animals, and another clown painting people's faces. The boom band was playing on a low stage in the back, and the guests were dancing to their hypnotic music with wild abandon. Some were doing cartwheels and handsprings around the dance floor. They were dressed for proms and for their own weddings and for every party they had ever dreamed of attending and not been invited to attend. The twelve sisters in damask gowns and beaded flats whirled past. Weetsy looked down at her soiled clothes and sneakers. The white-haired woman from the wedding came over and took Weetsy's hand. "'May I have this dance, my dear?' Weetsy said, "'I'm not really dread." The woman ignored her and led her out onto the floor. The music took over and Weetsy whirled with her, forgetting everything. When the dance ended, the woman took Weetsy aside. Did you find your animus? I saw him, Weetsy said, but he wasn't what I thought he'd be. What's that? I don't know. The perfect lover? He wasn't interested in me at all. Is that the point? What do you mean? Your animus isn't supposed to be interested in you. He's supposed to be integrated into you. That way you won't go chasing some idealized dream lover the rest of your days. Weetsy looked around the dance floor. The gammon bride and the tall, beaky groom from the wedding breezed past her. Their faces were painted white and they wore small white skull caps and matching white silk suits with huge buttons and collars. The bride had rosettes on her slippers. Weetsy thought she saw the couple levitate a few inches off the floor. Ah, honeymoon, the white-haired woman said. Isn't that the loveliest word? Honey, moon. 
Weetzie thought it was as good as numinous. She wished she had one of her own. Maybe the stay at the Pink Hotel counted as a solo version? Sweetheart, are you all right? It was Heaven, dressed in a ruby-red ball gown. She held Weetzie at arm's length and surveyed her dirty clothes. You look like you've been cleaning out the ashes. Where's your ball gown, Cinderella? Weetzie said, I wasn't planning on wearing this. I imagine not. You'd be better off in the nude. We could attach a centerpiece between your legs. She gestured to the stargazer lilies on the tables. I was going to wear... Before she could finish, Weetzie saw a young woman parade past her on the arm of a white-haired man. That, Weetzie said. The woman was wearing Amelia and the raspberry pink sandals. Before she knew it, Weetzie was being dragged onto the dance floor. Sal pulled her close and hissed in her ear. I had the strangest thing happen to me this morning. I woke all tied up in the biggest, strongest spiderweb I've ever seen. It took all day to get out of it. Weetzie tried not to look away. His breath smelled of liquor and his eyes were bloodshot. She felt his fingers digging into her arm. Your friend is wearing my poochie, Weetzie said, and my shoes. Well, 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 said Sal. Isn't that funny? Tit for tat. Or in this case, tat for tit. <laughs> I guess we traded possessions. I can live without mine. Can you? He dropped her arm as if he were tossing something into a trash can and walked away. Weetzie steadied herself. What was that about? Heaven asked. I think he stole some of my clothes, she said softly. She put her hand on Heaven's arm as she started after Sal. But he's right, in a way. <laughs> I guess we're even. Are you sure? Weetzie nodded and watched wistfully as Amelia left the ballroom. Well, let me know if you change your mind. Heaven kissed her and danced off. Weetzie heard her name. Dashelhart and Tristan Sable were seated with Pan and a very young woman wearing a short, diaphanous, pleated column of a dress and a crown of gold leaves on her tousled dark hair. Weetzie went to greet them. They all got up and kissed her cheek, except for the woman who only stared. This is Phaedra, Dashel said. She plays a nymph on the show. Hi, Phaedra. The dark-haired woman managed a small smile and put her hand on Pan's bicep. <laughs> that was quick, thought Weetzie. But after all, they were at the Pink Hotel. She hoped that Pan and Phaedra would be very happy laughing, crying, and coming together. The honeymooners in their Commedia dell'Arte costumes floated by, pressed chest to chest a few inches off the ground. Pan got up and took Phaedra's hand. Tristan Sable was led onto the floor by the white-haired woman. Heaven found Dashel Hart. Weetzie watched them. She felt a pain in her chest as if her heart were a glass disco ball that had been smashed into thousands of little pieces. The twelve princesses danced by. Come join us, they called. Girls just want to have fun. Come dance with us. You never have to stop dancing. Weetzie said, Thanks, ladies, but I, I can't. Then there would be thirteen of us. They ignored her, and two of them took her hands. Soon she was dancing by herself in the midst of the twelve damask dresses, whirling like a dervish. Sweat poured off her body like tears. Her heart pounded in her chest. It had not broken after all. An hour later, Weetzie was still dancing. 
She spun so fast the room was a carousel. Losing her balance, she went reeling. Sometimes you fall, spinning through space, grasping for things that keep you here. Sometimes you catch them. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes they catch you. Weetzi careened into a man in a tuxedo standing at the entrance to the ballroom. It was Max. When their bodies touched, the lights in the ballroom flickered for a moment. There was a slight shifting of earth beneath the pink hotel. The chandeliers tinkled. Balloons burst, sprinkling confetti over the dancers. Champagne corks popped. A swarm of blue butterflies th flew through the open windows. Weetzie felt something cold and wet pressing against her leg. It was the white dog's nose. He stood there watching her, swaying his head from side to side. Then he turned and high-stepped out the door. Max and Weetzie followed him down the staircase, through the lobby, and into the garden. The Necklace of Kisses The moon was completely full, white and papery like a lantern. It was so bright that the birds sang, believing morning had come. Weetzi and Max followed the white dog across a little bridge over a stream and into a grotto of moss and vines. The air smelled of American beauties, Marilyn's, and sugar plum fairy roses. Max handed Weetzi a large silver box swathed in sheer pink tulle. Mm. She unwrapped it and took out the pink gloves, the gold shoes, and the dress. Princess Grace! She said. Max smiled. Weetzi looked into his tired green eyes. She used her toe to push off one orange sneaker and then the other. She wriggled out of her tank top, unfastened her orange pants and let them fall off her hips to the ground. She wedged her rather sweaty, swollen feet into the golden shoes. She slid the long pink satin gloves up to her elbows smoothed them out and buttoned the pearl buttons. Then she reached behind herself and unhooked her orange bra. She slowly slid off her orange panties. Max had seen her naked before so many times. There in the moonlight, in the garden of the pink hotel, it felt like the first. Weetzi stepped into the huge tulle skirt covered with roses, careful not to catch it on the spikes of her heels. She leaned forward and shimmied her breasts into the cups of the dress, the way she had seen her mother do when she was young. Arms akimbo, she tried to find the zipper, but couldn't. Max put his hands on her waist and gently, firmly turned her around. He lightly grazed her skin with the zipper before it slid up smoothly. She shivered from the slight pain as she turned back to face him again. Max put both his hands on Weetzi's throat, touching the necklace of kisses. His fingers were warm and dry, trembling slightly. Weetzi helped Max take off his tuxedo jacket and bow tie and unbuttoned the collar of his white shirt. She could see the pulse in his neck. She reached up to her own and undid the tiny catch with her thumbnail. Then Weetzi Bat fastened the necklace of kisses around her secret agent lover man's throat. Waking from his two-year-long September, he pressed his lips to hers. 
this is what happened. Daisy Montgomery, who would never have her wedding night in the pink hotel, lifted out of the mist above the reflecting pool and flew off into the night sky. The sleeping goddess statues that the madam's son had hidden in the garden opened their eyes. Keiko Yamaguchi, the former owner of the pink hotel, who was now working secretly as a waitress in the Japanese restaurant, woke suddenly in her room, stumbled to the mirror, and saw that the hormones she had been taking for months, to no effect, had started to work. Isis Kenna Clay, the hotel receptionist, woke suddenly in her courtyard bungalow in West Hollywood, yawned, rubbed her face with her palms, stumbled to the bathroom, looked in the mirror, and found that her skin was no longer blue, but its original shade, a deep, rich ebony. In the ballroom, Dashiell Hart turned to the young actor Pan and offered him a role in the soap opera Eden Place. Tristan Sable peered into the pocket of, tu- of peered into the pocket of his tuxedo, where he discovered his long-lost friend Stem hiding. The twin masseur's father, Bear, a burly Swiss man with a long white beard, entered the ballroom. The white-haired woman, recognizing her future husband smiled to herself and went to ask him for a dance. After a day and night of traveling, the artist walked into the white wood frame house in upstate New York. He could hear the brook that ran through the backyard and see the shadow of the willow tree on the wall. Then Zane Starling went upstairs to the large bed where his wife was sleeping on fresh white linens with his two youngest children. She opened her eyes when she felt his breath on her face. The look she gave him was one he had seen six times before, so he did not need her to use words to tell him she was pregnant again. Somewhere in the Pacific Ocean, a mermaid with the legs of a woman swam in a school of dolphins to a cave covered with barnacles. The dolphins whistled goodbye and surged off. The mermaid went into the cave and found her mother, sleeping there in a pile of the pearls she had wept. Somewhere in a graveyard in New Orleans, three strange-looking people with red hair and an empty baby carriage were struck with amnesia. They stopped in their tracks and stared at each other, wondering why the hell they had come here in the first place. Esmeralda Escobar woke suddenly in her apartment near downtown Los Angeles and grabbed her sleeping husband's shoulders, Mira, she said. He opened his eyes and rubbed them three times to make sure he was not dreaming when he saw the girl he had married, grown older now, sitting beside him, her horse's mane of black hair loose around her shoulders. Dirk MacDonald and Duck Drake had the same dream. Wheatsy had come home. She was standing on the doorstep, naked and laughing, They rolled over in bed, found each other, and made love in their canyon house of cherry wood and stained glass windows. Ping Changjala felt something fluttering against her face. She woke to see two huge fluorescent blue butterflies in her room, in her bedroom. The pair circled for a while and then landed on sleeping Valentine Jalov's big bare shoulder, where they began to mate delicately. Ping 
did not take this as a sign of global warming or any other planetary distress, but as a sure message that Weetzie and Max had found each other again. In Santa Barbara, Cherokee Bat woke suddenly, sat at the sewing machine in the shape of a, of a sphinx, and began to work. She was making a sleeveless cream silk sheath over slim, sheer cream chiffon pants and a cream raw silk three-quarter length coat with a pale blue lining covered with silver stars. In the lining, she would put tiny notes, little charms to honor and protect the enchantress, her mother. In a cafe on Telegraph Avenue, witch baby sat across the table from her beloved angel Juan and said, what were you looking for? You, he answered. But you didn't know it? Not until now. She nodded. She said, now I need to find what I am looking for. Hilda Doolittle sat at her desk in her one-room Echo Park apartment, looking out over Sunset Boulevard through a window hung with skeleton lights. She was writing a poem called The Goddess in You. On the wall, she saw the unmistakable shadow of a woman, though there was no one there but herself. A young starlet left the hotel room of the producer with whom she had spent the evening and who was now asleep on the couch. She was carrying a white case covered with roses. She drove away from the pink hotel, never to return. As she merged onto the freeway, her trunk, her car trunk popped open. The latch on the white case undid itself, and a pink and green silk dress flew off into the night sky. While everyone in the ballroom kissed each other, heaven stepped onto the balcony. As soon as the moonlight touched heaven, haven emerged. We need to send her some CDs, said Haven. She's still talking about seasons in the sun. Heaven rolled her eyes. They took each other's hands and looked out over the grounds of the pink hotel. What a strange and beautiful night, Heaven sighed. All of the little atrium shops were dark, except for one. In her beautiful world, Lacey was weaving a tapestry telling a story out of her body. It was about people on fire. It was about people in love. It was about people falling from burning buildings. It was about people discovering they could fly. Whew. La end. Uh, do you remember Francesca talking about her beloved pair of creeper shoes? Oh my God, do I ever... <laughs> do I ever I just did an interview with author Julie Murphy who wrote If the Shoe Fits mm-hmm. and yeah, plug 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 that's the book that I am the audio narrator for so if you love audiobooks please listen to it if you love reading books please read it it's so good it's fat Disney Disney princesses it's fat Cinderella it's so great and um, one of the listeners asked Julie and I um, what our favorite young adult, what our most formative young adult experiences were. And I waxed rhapsodic about Francesca <laughs> and how much her work meant to me and to us. And I talked about our episode um, where we interviewed her. Yay. Yay. Oh, fuck. So good. God, that's a good story. So good. So good. 
So, fuck buddies. Um, you know about dreading the boards. We have finished Necklace of Kisses. We hope you loved it. And it's October. Mm. What does that mean, Lillian? Spooky shit. Spooky shit! So we have a few weeks coming up where we are going to focus on scary stories, which is our second favorite thing to revealing Uh the most mortifying shit. Like, I don't know, the worst message I've ever left on an answering machine. (laughs) God damn it. (laughs) I think that the worst message I left on an answering machine was when um, somebody called from a casting thing. And, like, I had missed the phone call, and I was, like, hours, hours later, and I was, like, hey, uh, I know you said to call by six, but if by any chance this is still on offer, blah, 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 Uh, and I knew the second, I knew as I was leaving it that I sounded thirsty and sad and desperate, but I still left it. No one called me. It was fine. It's fine. It's fine. Don't worry about it. I'm still alive. Well, at least you didn't tell your friend's mom that you were looking <laughs> at lesbian chat rooms. No, you did not. I did not. <laughs> did not. That was you. That was me. Uh, yep, that sure was. <laughs> good Lord. God, <laughs> too earnest for my own good, which is the whole reason. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Fuck. Uh, it wouldn't work otherwise. I know. For real. Um, this was lovely. I love you. Oh, I love you too. Also, but- I started watching Lula Retro. Mm, oh, isn't it so good? It's great. I am enjoying oh it thoroughly. Thoroughly. Oh when you get to the part where they're all like mailed, they're wet leggings you can like smell it through the tv no oh god i can't wait i'm so excited mm. all right fuck buddies we love you million i love you i love you too um have a great night you too pumpkin we'll see you guys That's soon all. wet leggings <laughs>